This podcast was recorded on July 20th, 2021. Welcome to the State of the Industry podcast. I'm Scott Hansen with Allworth Financial. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we, typically, we on the State of the Industry, we'll interview somebody for the, just for the podcast. We did a webinar recently with Skip Schweiss. Skip is the president of the Financial Planning Association, talking about capital gain uh, taxes. And we thought it was such a good webinar. We had such great feedback. Let's have this as a podcast uh, for our podcast listeners as well. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. hope you learned something. Just kind of let you know where we're headed here. Um, Skip Schweiss was kind enough to take some time to join us. I've known Skip for, I don't know, 15 years, something like that, Skip. Um, Feels about uh, right. Skip had started off in the, what, the 401k side of business originally. Was that where you began? Uh, RAA custody, and then over time, uh, got involved in the retirement plan uh, business, uh, servicing business, and then also in public policy advocacy, which I think is what led me here today. Right. And so Skip was at, at TD Ameritrade for a number of years and um, was essentially the one who worked with our lobbyists, would would fly to Washington uh, on a frequent basis and spend time with uh, uh, all the lovely people on Capitol Hill. <laughs> Capitol Hill. Uh, and he's currently the president of the Financial Planning Association. And I think there's, what, 19,000 people or so that are, are members. And by the way, if you're not a member of the FBI, I encourage you to, to join uh, the FBI. And they've got a conference uh, uh, coming up this fall that I'll have Skip talk about before we before we finish things off. So looking forward to hearing from uh, Skip and hearing his comments. Uh, I'm not going to tell you much about myself um, because uh, you can learn more if you want anyway. But th <laughs> this, is uh, this is what we're going to be talking about today. And not necessarily addressing each one of these specifically, but th these themes are going to be woven into our conversation today. So it's really the details of the proposed legislation and what it might mean, uh, how this could impact the value of your firm if you're at a time where you're thinking about I figure out some sort of succession plan or a sale in the next few years. Um, why selling, executing a succession plan or partnering now could save you some money down the road. Uh, we're going to look at the potential benefits of installment sales and maybe some pitfalls there as well. Uh, how partnership equity can lower your tax exposure. And then we'll have some, some Q&A. So that's kind of basically where we're headed today. Um, so, Skip, you, you've spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. First of all, what do you think the likelihood of a capital gain tax uh, happening this year, changing the capital gain tax rates? I think it's highly likely. And, and when you say happening this year, I mean a bill passing this year. I, th I think it's highly likely. I, I'd give it, uh, I'd give it an eighty to ninety percent. And then, what do you think the likelihood of that being retroactive to the date was April twenty second or something when it was announced? Twenty eighth. Yeah, April 28th was the date of the president's proposal, and there was some uh, initial talk about yeah, if they would ultimately pass something, they, they would make it retroactive to that date. Uh, I think that's very unlikely, actually. There, there's quite a bit of opposition to, uh, to making it retroactive. And if you were a betting man, so you're betting that there's going to be a change, you aren't betting that there's, it's going to be retroactive. Um, right. What, what what do you think the, the rate's going to be, right? I mean, so we start out at this super high high number. Um, I don't think anyone thinks it's going to be as high as income tax rates, but where do you think it's going to end up? Yeah, I, I think uh, a betting person might assume it's going to be somewhere between where it is today and uh, this the current proposal. This current proposal at you know thirty nine point six percent plus the three point eight percent. 
uh, they call it in the proposal a Medicare tax. It, it came in with the Affordable Care Act, but whichever. Uh, you combine those, you get 43.4%. I don't think too many people are betting it's going to be 43.4%. But versus today's 23.8, combining those two, I think you could bet it comes in somewhere in the 30 to low 30s range. Wow. It's been a while since we've had capital gains in that range, 30%. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was 15. Right. And it's, what, 15 and 20, depending on your, your bracket today. Yeah. So or zero. that would be a jump. Or zero, right? Yeah, for if you don't have a lot of income, it's, a, it's there's still some planning opportunities. And so with, yep. I mean, we're in a time right now. It was, it's been a really interesting political <laughs> environment the last number, well, the last number of years for crying out loud. But if we think about what the, the election, um, and then we ended up having, we were, I think most people were thinking that we're gonna we're gonna know where the Senate stands, um, but we we didn't. We had to wait till January. And looking at Georgia, I think many people, at least myself, I thought, well, clearly they're not going to vote in two Democratic senators. They're going to want some sort of gridlock in Washington so that one party doesn't control everything. And then we ended up uh, with um, a 50-50 split in the Senate. And so they don't quite have the mandate. They don't have 51, but they've got 50. And, of course, uh, uh, Harris, uh, vice president, is, is the tiebreaker. Um, well, what is what does this mean politically like right right now? I mean, what what has to happen for us to have any sort of change here? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I believe, like you did, that uh, uh, let's just say I was quite surprised that uh, Georgia voted two uh, Democratic senators to, to go to Washington. So we ended up with a 50 50, as you point out, which means and, and as you further point out, that means the Democrats control because they control the White House and uh, Kamala Harris would be the tiebreaker, um, but it also means they're they're on thin ice. You might say. I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way, but I mean they're aware. The Democrats are are aware that if they uh, overstep, uh, they could easily lose the Senate next year. And in particular, you've got uh, like a, a fairly right leaning Democrat and Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who's going to wield a lot of power in this negotiation. And he's he's the kind of guy who might say, you know, you need my vote. You need all 50 to make this happen. And you don't get mine unless you, you know, come down from that 43 percent to, uh, you know, he's proposed 28 uh, plus the 3.8, which is where you get into the low 30s. Um, That's what uh, Joe Manchin's come back and said he's he'd be good for 28. He has. Yep. And he seems like he feels like the most powerful person in the Senate right now. Uh, I think that's accurate. Yeah, I think all eyes are on him. There's even speculation. I, I emphasize speculation uh, that at some point he could switch parties. He seems to be always on the kind of the right wing of the, the Democratic Party in the Senate. Uh, when was the last time we we saw that in um, was it Clinton years last time we saw someone switch? Oh, boy, you're testing me now, but um, it, it seems it's like it's been a while. Uh, it's right. not very common when you see someone switch in the, in the, the Senate. So let's assume no. that um, that um, Manchin's uh, Joe Manchin's uh, 28 percent number sticks plus the 3.8 uh, percent Obamacare tax. Um, when when would you when would you propose that not propose? When would you guess that that would come into effect? Would that be beginning of next year? 
retroactive. So yeah, for, date? Forecast, forecasting is a tricky business, of course, but I would, if I had to guess, I would say Jan 1 of 22. Well, it, it, no, you talk no about forecasting, the tricky business. The, the challenge is like, as financial advisors, both working with our clients as well as trying to be good stewards of our own businesses, it's like pro looking at probabilities of outcome, right? And that's, I think, what Evan's trying to do right now. Like, what is the probability right. of an in, of an increase, uh, and what's the what's the likelihood of when that'll be effective? And then we can make decisions both for our own firms. We can make decisions for our clients, uh, that sort of thing. So, um, and it, it, right now with the recording, we're, it's July twentieth is the time we're doing this recording right now, and many are, are watching live right now as well. But um, we're already starting to see the infrastructure bill. Um, you know, it's getting it's it's getting narrowed down. I mean, um, does it feel like uh, this administration doesn't is losing a bit of the power that it had a couple months ago? It does, Scott. And I'm reading a number of uh, analyses in the last couple of weeks that suggest that the uh, the administration is losing some momentum on some of its proposals. Uh, you go back to this 50 50 uh, split Senate. Uh, and, and some more right-leaning or moderate-leaning Democrats kind of applying the brakes a little bit to some of this. You've got the Republicans who, of, of course, in this hyper-partisan era are just going to pretty much oppose anything the president proposes. Um, and there's general consensus around the need for an infrastructure bill, but the Republicans are the ones in there right now saying, well, that's all good. You want to spend a trillion or a trillion two crazy to me as an aside, how we toss around that T word these days, uh, but how are you going to pay for it? And uh, so, so you've got that as well. And, and uh, you know, we're going to talk probably more about this capital gains and some other things in the, the Biden administration proposal, but we don't have a bill yet. Um, so in fact, I think a bill just dropped yesterday around the, um, uh, who was it? Uh, Senator Ron, Ron Wyden from Oregon uh, dropped a bill yesterday, I think, on the, uh, I think it was on the step up in uh, basis. Uh, but that's the first first bill. That's far from the omnibus type approach that the president wants. So it's further guesswork on all of our parts here that uh, we don't, we have the president's proposal, but it's just a proposal. It's got to be turned into legislation. It's got to start in the House. It's got to get passed there, which it probably would. And then go over to the Senate, which will be a tougher battleground. And then they've got to reconcile the two into one. So there's quite a road ahead yet for some of this stuff to get finalized. Yeah, and when I think what's um, people choose political parties for a variety of reasons, right? And and taxation yeah. and and government size of government is one of those. But there's also a lot of other social issues. And my guess would be that there are probably quite a few uh, wealthy Democrats that are supportive of much of what the Democratic Party puts forward, but not really in favor of seeing their capital gain tax rates double. I mean, I'm just guessing if someone's an executive out of Silicon Valley, they founded a company or one of the co-founders and has to have some cash set up in stock, they're probably not probably not all that excited about, um, particularly if they're in California, having more than 50% of it go to the government. That's a pretty good guess. And whether it's a Silicon Valley uh, tech uh, executive or founder or a New York City real estate investor, because they're also talking about uh, really skinnying down the 1031 exchange uh, exemption. Um, there are Democratic uh, voters and probably more importantly, contributors 
who, as you suggest, maybe support most of what the, uh, the Democratic Party stands for and advocates for, but not everything. And when it starts to look like it's going to hit them pretty hard in the pocketbook, they'll be speaking up. And so you spent time with TD Ameritrade going back to Washington, meeting with people on Capitol Hill, meeting with lobbyists, et cetera. Um, and there's a variety of industry organizations, right? You're, you're the president of the FPA this year, Financial Planning Association, but there's a handful of other industry organizations. How often are they um, on the same side of the, of the table um, when it comes to legislation? That's a good question. It, it varies, but it, it tends to be when we see a, an issue like this of taxes going up, especially on capital gains, when you get close to the heart of our industry and profession, uh, a lot of these industry trade, the financial service industry trade organizations tend to unite around those sorts of things. Uh, when you get something that's maybe more regulatory in nature, like a fiduciary rule of some kind, that's when you, you can see <laughs> kind of a parting of the ways uh, where maybe the brokerage and insurance sleeves of the industry might come down on one side and the fiduciary advisor and planner and consumer groups might can come down on another side. Well, yeah, I, and I would imagine most people who are in the wealth management industry of a variety of sorts is uh, would be uh, against any sort of government confiscation of additional wealth because it means less business for them as far as that goes. But um, you, you briefly talked about stepped-up basis as well as 1031, so let's spend a, a few moments on that. Um, the step-up basis has been around for as long as I can remember. Um, it's a great planning tool for clients, um, particularly people in community property states. It's like let's I, – I just think I've, I've, I've been a financial planner for 30-plus years, and I think about a client I've had for 20-plus years that had this uh, relatively large position in some mutual fund that – I like the capital when I first met him, like didn't make sense to pay the capital gain taxes on it. And he's gotten older and it's not the best thing, but it's like, let's just wait until you pass away or your wife passes away. And then we could worry about then Then we can all that is forgiven. Then we could reposition the assets. Um, and I think I know there's a lot of financial advisors that it's the same kind of planning. Um, and so it would be a tremendous impact and change. I think for, for everyone in our, in our industry, if that um, uh, goes away, um, what's the chatter right now in Capitol Hill regarding that? So, I mean, it's looking like it's looking like all the Democrats are uh, supportive of some increase in capital gain tax rate. Uh, are we seeing the same kind of um, uh, enthusiasm for the elimination of the step up? I'm going to say no. Um, and just to put a little finer point on the it wouldn't be a full elimination of the step up, but the Biden proposal does. Uh, call for a, a $1 million exemption. So a million dollars in gains would be exempt, which is probably a lot if you're holding a mutual fund position. It's maybe not a lot if, you're, if you've got a business you've spent your life building. Uh, One million for single taxpayers, uh, two million for uh, married taxpayers filing jointly would be the exemption. Uh, and then there's an, and this leads more to your question, there's an exemption in there for uh, I think it's phrased family-owned businesses and farms that are passed down to heirs for operation operating purposes. Meaning, you know, I run a farm, I pass away, the farm goes to my my children to operate. Uh, I think the devil would be in the details on that. Uh, you know, what counts as an heir or what counts as a family-owned business? Uh, yep. A lot of those businesses, a lot of new family-owned businesses being created. 
Yeah, right. And uh, I think that last provision was put in there because of a lot of, uh, in particular, agriculture state uh, members of Congress who said, wait a minute. Uh, and I come from an agriculture state in the Midwest originally and knew a lot of farmers and ranchers. And, you know, if you made them sell off land every time a generation passed away over some generations, that farm wouldn't really exist anymore. And, and you'd have less and less income generating capacity with each generation. So that's problematic, uh, not just for farm farmers and ranchers, but for just small business people in general. Uh, and I, I think there's a recognition there to your question. Uh, I think some Democrats get a little uneasy about that one. Uh, so I personally think that one might have a little bit tougher time than the capital gains tax does. Then the other one is the 1031 exchange, which is funny. I've, uh, I've got some uh, fairly good friends in the real estate development business, and I've always been envious of their the way they can construct <laughs> their taxes because they'll have a piece of property, it goes up in value, they pull some cash out of it, they use that to invest somewhere else, then they sell it to a 1031 exchange. And so they, like, like over 30 years, they hardly pay any, any income taxes, any capital gain taxes. Um, and of course, when we saw Trump in the White House, you knew that that wasn't going to change under his watch because that's where his wealth was tied up. And, but um, what's, the, I mean, what, what's happening right now with that? So that was also part of the Biden uh, tax proposal. And he is proposing that uh, $500,000 be exempt um, in any given year, but above that uh, gains would be taxed. So, you know, he's going at, if you're a smallish investor, if you've got a rental home or something you sell, fine. If you're a bigger investor and you've got a, you know, a bunch of apartment buildings or, or something like that, uh, that game would be, largely over. And has there been a lot of chatter on that? Um, like you said earlier, there's there's actually no there's no bill yet with these with these numbers and in, in these changes. Right. It's just a, a proposal from the administration, from the executive branch that the only chatter I've heard, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, I don't want to make this all partisan, but it that's kind of the way things do work these days. And there are a lot of Democrats who are real estate investors as well as Republicans. And if you're a real estate investor, uh, like some of your friends, and you see this proposal, you might be on the phone with your elected uh, representatives. Uh, so I think this one, like the, uh, the step up, could have a bit of a tougher road than, say, a, a capital gains tax increase. And so we've had the administration comes up pretty early on saying, here's my wish list of three and a half trillion or four and a half trillion or after a while, a trillion here, a trillion there. It starts adding up to some real money. But um, in order for legislation to happen, there needs some, somebody needs to come up with a bill, right? Um, and, right. And so we, you mentioned we saw one uh, from the uh, senator from, from Oregon. Um, in, yeah. Any guess where, where we might see another bill pop up and, and who's going to be behind that? Uh, I have seen nothing yet. Um, typically, you're going to see those bills come from uh, like House Ways and Means that deals with tax. And, and uh, the Constitution tells us that tax bills, revenue raising bills have to start in the House, the people's house. Um, but I've seen nothing on who who's going to lead that charge at this point. Um, and there's the whole kind of reconciliation process where they can. Um, it's once a year or is it? once or maybe twice a year and it, I'm, 
I'm, I'm a bit confused on how that process works. So if you mean uh, the reconciliation of bills between the House and Senate, uh, that happens on an ad hoc basis as they pass legislation. So a tax bill might, you can expect in coming months, probably in the next, uh, I would guess maybe, let's see, they're about to go on recess. So um, maybe in September, you might see a bill come out of the House uh, with as many of these things as they think they can uh, get done. And, you know, they'll hash through that. It'll come out of committee. It'll go to the floor. It'll probably get passed. And then the, the Senate will come, will take that bill and it will chop it up. It's got its own uh, interests and, and so on, and they'll change it. And then if they pass one, then the two have to come together. There's a, a committee that will be formed of members of the House and Senate and their staffs, and they will grind through and, and they'll, they have to match everything up. So they end up with one bill and then it has to get voted on again and then approved by the president. And so it's, something's likely going to happen, be passed this year. Your guess is probably won't be retroactive. That's my best guess is yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> the little slides, just predictions, and, wrong, and projections, projections. We've been talking about those for a bit. So let's kind of pivot over to um, what this might mean for our industry. And as president of the Financial Planning Association, you're um, – responsible to, to, to see the financial advisors of people in a variety of uh, places in their career, variety of different size firms. Um, from what you've been uh, witnessing out there and talking with people, what, what, what might, how might this impact the industry? So obviously a lot of these proposals would impact advisors' clients, and uh, that would mean a lot of probably more meetings and maybe planning opportunities for advisors and planners with their clients. Uh, as far as the uh, the businesses that advisors it, it, run, even, you know, I, I, I would actually say that it could be um, anytime there's change, it could be good for a financial planner's business if they want to use this as a yeah. marketing opportunity, whether that's broad marketing or it's this referral marketing or whatever kind of marketing. Anytime there's some some changes, it creates uh, questions for our clients and and it's an opportunity for someone to grow grow their business. But opportunity to grow their business and uh, to pay more of that uh, growth in taxes. And uh, and then, uh, you, you know, we are, I am hearing quite a bit about an acceleration of uh, succession planning and, uh, you know, taking chips off the table and all those phrases. Uh, we all know that uh, the average financial advisor uh, is probably my age, uh, maybe 50s or 60s, and thinking about uh, maybe phasing out or, or liquidating part or all of their firm. And um, I'm hearing a lot of talk about maybe we better get that done in 2021. Otherwise, it's going to, we're not going to keep nearly as much of our hard earned gains uh, over the years if this rolls over to next year. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, right before the, we came onto this, this uh, webinar here, I was talking with a colleague internally just about the, uh, Kind of increase in volume we've had of firms reaching out to us interested in maybe doing a deal before the year's over. And we were having a discussion like, like how how many firms how many deals can can a firm get done? Whether it's Allworth or or one of the other um, kind of larger acquirers out there, it's uh, if suddenly there's a huge percentage that tries to get a deal done this year, it might be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, and you've got less than stating the obvious. You've got less than half a year to go. 
So, uh, you know, if you're just thinking about initiating a deal now, you, you better have your foot on the accelerator hard. And, and it puts the uh, seller, I suppose, in uh, a little bit less favorable position if they really got a, a clock ticking of December 31st. Well, yeah, I mean, if someone starts in like maybe October, starts looking for a, a buyer. Uh, right. Yeah, it, it's always it's, it's those kind of conversations you have with clients about uh, you, know, you always want to look at what's don't let the taxes necessarily drive an investment decision that let it maybe influence it, but not drive it. And I think the same thing should be people be considering right now as well. And um, obviously, one way to, to, to defer as much as is, is by having some equity um, in whatever someone takes an equity is typically um, typically tax deferred um, when someone swaps their own stock with stock of a, an acquiring company. So it's kind of one way to look at things. So. That would make sense. Let's um, let's look at some of these questions here and tackle some of these questions. And what? Um, and by the way, if you've got a question for us, just um, there's a little thing there. Just enter what the question might be, and we're happy to talk about it. Um, what, uh, what's the chatter about a proposal to change status of advisors from independent contractor to employee? Uh, this is kind of interesting because if you look at what's happened, um, you know, even with um, can, the gig economy and some of the tack on that, uh, you look at the, um, the some of the current appointees within the Department of Labor and all that. So uh, what are we seeing there? I think you're going to see a tightening up there. Um, and it's something uh, FPA has got its eyes on pretty closely because uh, a lot of our, you mentioned our 19,000 members, a lot of those are independent fee-only planners, but a, a lot of those are also uh, advisors at uh, independent broker-dealers where they are, the word independent, they are independent. They, they use the broker-dealer platform uh, for their custody and clearing and, and so on, but uh, they're independent contractors, and that would change that business model excuse me, that changes that business model dramatically. Um, the, the Trump administration, DOL, had uh, passed a little bit of a tweak, a nuanced opening in that, and the Biden administration just uh, took that away, basically. And I would expect, in fact, I know the Department of Labor is looking at uh, a possible tightening of that. Like, what, what would qualify as a... Uh, for someone to be an independent con contractor versus no, that looks more like a, an employee to me. Because we've already seen some tightening, even in the last couple of years. There, it. it um, I mean, I, I've been in this industry for thirty years, and I've heard this um, this concern for thirty years. And yeah, I suppose there's a time in, in the future that, that that could have some impact. But um, I, I think right now, well, it's the great from the Department of Labor, would it not? Yes. All right, let's look at some additional questions here. Um, Aaron asks, what happens to long-term capital gain loss carryovers if capital gain tax go, rates go away? I mean, if capital gains rates go up. What happens to carryovers? Have we seen any, any, has there been any, any, well, right now we don't have a bill yet, right? <laughs> so right. Um, I guess there's a possibility of either eliminating the carryover of, of capital losses or um, having them so they're not worth quite as much? Uh, I have seen nothing on that yet. Maybe I need to dive deeper into the uh, I, the Biden proposal, but I haven't I haven't seen that one. I don't think there was anything in the Biden proposal, but um, obviously th things could change in a variety of ways. Yep. 
Uh, okay, this is a good question. Um, uh, Skip, you spent a lot of time advocating for advisors and clients on Capitol Hill. What has been your experience with lawmakers, and what's their view of our industry? Mm, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I sat across the desk from a lot of lawmakers and a lot of their staffs and a lot of the regulators that uh, oversee our industry. Um, honestly, the regulators understand us a lot better than the lawmakers do, because if you're at the SEC, you've got a fairly narrow uh, worldview, you know, the securities industry um, and its various component parts. If you're sitting in Congress, you know, and a guy like me walks in there to talk about taxes or, uh, you know, something like that, uh, the last meeting they had was probably from someone in their ear about Cuba and the next meeting they're going to have is probably someone in their ear about farm price subsidies or, or whatever. Uh, they have to be kind of experts on 500 different issues, whatever comes at them any given day. So their their worldview of financial services is not nearly as deep as as some of the regulators are. Uh, so <clears throat> a lot of times we have to go in there and do some educating on what's the difference between a financial planner and an RAA, a, a broker, a securities broker, an insurance person. And oh, by the way, there are a lot of people out there who wear multiple of those hats. And um, it, it can be kind of confusing. You can see a confused look on the, on the face of a, a member of Congress when you go into a lot of this. There are actually a couple of uh, members of the House who I think were formerly financial advisors in a previous life, uh, there's a guy from Arkansas whose name is escaping me right now, and I think there's one other who really do understand the differences. Um, and unfortunately, Scott, uh, we all get kind of tarred uh, in Congress at times and with the public as we're all Wall Street. Uh, you know, financial advisors, Wall Street, and Wall Street gets bad headlines sometimes. And uh, so we've got to overcome some of that uh, ongoing as well. Well, I've often said that our industry has a poor reputation and it's well earned. Um, there's some I can't problems. argue with you. Yeah, <laughs> just not some just some bad actors that continue to pop up. That's I think right. humanity. But uh, uh, another question here: I have a uh, I have a twenty year financed sale of my firm to my son in order to minimize our taxes. We're currently into our sixth year. Would it make sense to accelerate payments in view of the potential capital gains? increase scott you might answer that question better than i can into 20 there's a lot of years still to go yeah, yeah. I mean. that's 12 years of uncertainty uh and you know you could see a capital gains tax increase next year as we talked earlier and then three or four or five years from now you could have a different administration and different congressional makeup and those rates could come back down again uh, it, that seems to be the way anymore so what would how would you answer that scott um that's exactly i mean it, that's a, you have a long time to go um it probably depends obviously odds are it's a smaller firm it's not like there's millions of dollars that is being transferred every year so it's probably a smaller number and um, um depending on where the capital gains rates where the, the way the kind of brackets are it might not even impact this individual um yeah. So I think um, it's funny. I always just like um, I think most financial advisors and even on the ones looking at the sale of a business, the probabilities of outcome and you, you try to put some sort of probabilities on things that nobody has a crystal ball. But um, 
at least we understand human nature somewhat. We know how our uh, legislative um, branch works, and um, we can kind of keep an eye on, on who's in there and where the political winds are shifting and what that could mean over a period of time and what's happened historically on political winds and how long things tend to last before pendulum swings back to the other side and those sort of things. But um, I think the inter- bigger, yeah, well, the more interesting thing here is a 20-year installment <laughs> sale to a family member. That's a long time. I don't think I've ever right. seen one that long. I, I think one thing I forgot to mention earlier about the uh, proposed capital gains tax increase as well that you, you triggered for me when you said, you know, it, it might be not a not millions of dollars a year in, in over 20 years is they are proposing uh, that th- these higher rates would apply on income over a million dollars a year. Uh, so if, if that's a 20 years at, you know, five hundred thousand dollars a year, depending on your other income, you might not see an increase next year. But any income that pushes above the million dollar threshold would be subject to that higher rate. Uh, another question that came in here. Any thoughts on opportunity zones remaining viable as a tax planning tool as they relate to some of the potential changes we are discussing? I will just confess I'm far from an expert on that topic. On opportunity as zones. Am I. I'm very <laughs> vaguely aware of them. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've I've always been a little uh, leery of them. It's like, uh, okay, you get some tax breaks if you invest in some crappy investments. That's what it's felt like to me. And um, <laughs> you can get tax breaks by investing in lots of things that don't go up in value. <laughs> but, um, right. So, I, I mean, I think you really need to understand what you're doing in some of these opportunity zones, and the, the uh, typical investor doesn't have that. Uh, they're just not the experts in that area, so. Um, any kind of final thoughts you might you, you might have? Let's, let me ask you this: um, If you if you were an advisor right now, and uh, let me just ask you this question, because you see a lot of advisors right now. If you if you were to step out and say, "I'm going to become a financial advisor," uh, what what area of the business would you go into? Like what what would your what would your who would you target? What would your strategy be? You see all kinds of firms. You've talked to tons of people. I do and have. Um, you know, I've been asked that question before, and, and part partly I'm biased because I did spend a decade or so in the retirement plan servicing world, and I know Scott, your firm serves uh, some businesses with their retirement plan. You know, it seems like every one of the however many hundreds of thousands of let's broadly call them wealth managers in this country are looking for people, individuals who have money that they can manage, but a very small sliver of those are looking for company 401k plans to help them manage. And I've said to many people, if I were starting today, I'm just the way you phrased your question, I might put a, a microscope on that market because there's half a million 401k plans in this country and not nearly as many uh, advisors chasing that segment as there are the uh, moderate to high net worth individuals. That's an interesting point because um, what we've noticed, and we've had uh, 12 or 13 firms or so partner up with us, uh, become part of Allworth. Oftentimes you'll have an advisor that um, maybe has a couple hundred clients. They also have two or three 401k plans. They know they're not doing the best job in their 401k because they, they're not real experts on it. They have to kind of brush up before they have the means and they so they're but kind of part-time 401k managers and so one of them i think when they they join us they get our 401k uh, team to work on it but i was just looking through um 
last night I was looking through our financial numbers, monthly numbers. And uh, one of the things we look at is, um, of course, we look at what's in, what's happened with market values um, based on what the market's done. We also look at how much people have uh, deposited. We look at new client, new money. We look at existing client, new money. We look at withdrawals. We look at attrition. And I was looking at those from different segments of our business. And then I was focusing on the 401k. And the 401k, a couple of things of, of note, obviously people are contributing much more money than they're withdrawing because they're, they're still working, right? So they're, they're not taking out money to spend on things. They're contributing money. And they tend to be more aggressively invested, right? Because there's, many of them are still years away from retirement. So um, you kind of start thinking of a, if you believe that long-term uh, equities are going to perform well over the next 10 or 20 years, you would, one would think that the 401k business is going to be a beneficiary of that more than, uh, say, someone who's retired and drawing down. Yeah. And, and the one point you made there, I, I agree with everything you just said, but the one point I often make to advisors is every two weeks, new money comes into that account. So how many of your individual wealth management clients are adding money to their account every two weeks? Probably none. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really wonderful industry. It really is. And I think there's a lot of um, tailwinds in yeah. our industry for um, advisors. Uh, obviously, there's some headwinds, and this may be one headwind we're looking at with the capital gain tax uh, increase, a potential increase coming. And I think um, I do think it's an important time for advisors to be paying attention to the political environment um, and, and what could be happening here. And as we get further down the year, really, it's going to be more important to start having these conversations with clients like, all right. If these things happen, this this is this is the impact it could have in your life. Do we want to make some changes today in anticipation of that? Absolutely, and uh, you know there are a lot of other things we in the in the hopper in Congress right now. We didn't have time to get to, but it, it looks to me like uh, it's quite possible the required minimum distribution age could go from seventy two to seventy five. It just went from seventy and a half to seventy two a year or two ago, but. Congress is recognizing people are living longer, working longer, and maybe we shouldn't force them to take money out, uh, maybe causing them tax problems in the process. Um, there's a uh, part of the Biden proposal is percentage of, it seems to me that the, 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 the clients that we have that have a requirement of distribution problem are been the ones that have been great savers over the years. They're not big spenders, tend to believe. They have always lived below their means. They've saved well. That's why they have all this money in their retirement account. Um, they're not the ones that um, are, are retiring early and starting Social Security at 62, right? <laughs> Which right. still the majority start Social Security early. So it's one of these things I kind of look at, like, who, what, what percentage of Americans really have a required minimum distribution issue? It's just, I, my guess, it's probably just the wealthier ones. It's probably the clients of financial advisors. Well, no question. The clients, <laughs> the clients we love, right? <laughs> right. The ones that have been good savers over the years. Those are our best clients. That's right. Yeah, so the RMD is that you think that's a you know that's obviously that something that could be thrown in there. Any of the other things you're seeing out there? Uh, yeah, the RMD has good bipartisan support to to push that up. Um, extending Social Security taxes on incomes above four hundred thousand dollars. So you'd have this this donut hole of sorts that today the cap is one hundred thirty seven thousand seven hundred income above that in a year it is not taxed for Social Security. Uh, that would be the case under the proposal, but then you get to 400 and that 12.4% tax would kick back in. Uh, the Biden administration seems to have settled on a $400,000 number as being kind of quote unquote wealthy. And uh, President Biden has pledged he will not raise taxes on people who make under 400,000. 
you can tell by my hairline and the color of my beard, I've been around long enough to see. I remember when 100,000 was considered wealthy uh, by politicians, and then uh, the Obama administration set a threshold at 250, and just a few short years later, uh, Biden sets it at 400. Uh, so you, you see a number of these proposals revolving around the people who make more than four hundred thousand uh, dollars. They're talking about capping deductions at the twenty eight percent level. So if someone's in a thirty five or thirty seven or thirty nine percent income tax bracket, they would only get a twenty eight percent deduction, not a thirty something percent deduction. And some of these seem like the same things that were uh, kicked around in the Obama administration as well. Some of them are. Yep. Both those, both those, those issues were kind of kicked around. You know, it's interesting, uh, uh, Skip. I've got a um, <clears throat> a nephew that had a, a graduated with a PhD in um, political science. Man, I don't know, it was global political science or something. And as you imagine, he's on the kind of on the left side of, of the of the ledger when it comes to political issues. And we're having this discussion about um, tax rates. And and I said to him, I said, like, here's the, the reality is this: if the tax rates get high enough, at some point in time. I'm just going to say it's not worth being in business anymore. Like, I, I, I don't really need this. Like, I, I don't really need to make more money. I was telling, like, personally, I don't need, I don't need this. So, if it's the point where if I win, take a bet, and I win, I keep twenty cents on the dollar, and I lose, I lose the whole dollar. At some point in time, that's not worth the risk. I'm just going to close up shop. And he says to me, "I never really thought of it that way." <laughs> and I thought you you have a PhD in political science. I mean, you know, it's, right? It's, well, it's, he's probably going to be one of our future PhD. legislators because that's kind of the guy. Yeah, know. probably. Anyway, it's, well, well, I it's appreciate a, the chance, the time you took with us today, Skip, and uh, some insight. Obviously, we don't have any any uh, any clear answers, but it does give us some 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 more guidance. I think as we look at both planning for our clients as well as planning for our own businesses. So I think it was valuable time, yeah. and I greatly appreciate it. Great to be with you, Scott. Always good to Real see you. And uh, the FBA yeah. annual conference. Yeah, it's uh, actually in person this year. I know conferences are uh, coming back in, and uh, we're going to do ours in person September 22nd to 24th in Columbus, Ohio. And we're planning for a scaled-back event because we've done a lot of member surveys, and there's still a chunk of our membership saying, I'm not getting on an airplane, and I'm not going to a conference and shaking hundreds of hands and all of that. I understand that. So uh, we're going to scale it back a little bit, but uh, it's going to be awesome to be there in person, and uh, I will be one of those people there. Well, good. Well, it'll be a good conference, I'm sure. And again, uh, FPA, if you're not a member, I encourage you to do a lot of good things for industry, so I encourage you to do that. So again, thanks, uh, Skip, for taking some time. My pleasure. Anytime, Scott. Well, thanks for participating in our State of the Industry podcast. Um, Great having you with us. If you'd like to learn more about Allworth Financial, we've got a great website called allworthpartners.com. It talks about our partnership program, and you can learn about what that means at Allworth. And again, thanks for uh, taking some time to listen to the podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Allworth Financial, a registered investment advisory firm with the Securities and Exchange Commission.